thank you to our musicians. I do love that last song we sang, and I think it's very fitting. Today, there's a line in there, kingdoms rise and fall, that I think we're going to, that goes right along with what the book of Nahum is talking about. So if you will, turn to the book of Nahum. As we are seeing the prophecy of the fall of a great kingdom. And as you turn there, I will pray. Father, Lord, I just pray, God, that we would be able to look at this prophecy that was spoken and given to us so long ago. And yet we know that your word is timeless. We know that you have transcended time, that your word transcends time, and that we can trust it with accuracy, and that we can trust it that it has application to us today. God, and I pray that the accuracy of the message would be there, that you would lead this message with your Holy Spirit, that, that it would communicate with your people God, with your body, with your flock, Lord, that we would be able to learn, that we would be able to glorify you, and that we would be able to apply this in our lives that would continue to glorify you each day as we go about our lives, as we go about our jobs, as we go about teaching our children and, and even spreading the word of truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, Nahum. If you weren't here last time, it, I think it's, I guess it's been five weeks since we started the book of Nahum, and this is not one of the most popular books to preach. It's probably fair to say a lot of you have never heard a sermon out of the book of Nahum, um, and to be honest, I had never heard a sermon out of the book of Nahum. So, but that does not mean it is not important. God gave it to us in his word. And so we need, to, we need to look into that. I would say it's probably also uh, likely that you have heard a sermon out of the book of Jonah before. It's interesting how certain things become more popular because the book of Jonah is well known. It made the, it made the kids' storybooks, right? So, I mean, and, hey, rightly so. It is a fascinating thing that happened to Jonah. So if you weren't here, Nahum is actually the sequel to the book of Jonah. About a hundred years later, Nahum is prophesying to the same group of people that Jonah did, which was the Ninevites, at the city of Nineveh, which are Assyrians. And so Nahum is bringing the solemn, sad, scary, and vengeful warning to the city of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria, that they are under God's judgment. This is why I can appreciate what Paul taught this morning so well, because we're going to see some parallels um, of what Nahum is saying, and we're going to see some some of the things that we are in our culture, in our our country, um, of God's judgment. So it is relevant. It is very relevant today. So it's roughly 100 years after Jonah delivered a similar message. Jonah went there and delivered a message of judgment as well. 
that the outcome will be much different. When Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, the Assyrians, the wicked, and there was no difference in the wickedness. The wickedness of the Assyrians in Jonah's time, now the Assyrians have returned, um, potentially even more wicked. But they were wicked when Jonah went there. It wasn't like, hey, these are good old boys. I think they'll receive the truth. No, that's the reason Jonah ran. He ran from Nineveh because he didn't want them to receive mercy. Right, So he goes and he preaches, and they repented as a people, as a group. The city of Nineveh repented and believed in God. There will be no repentance this time. I'll spoil the end of the book. There will be no repentance. But in the last message, we saw a balance of how God's jealousy will bring judgment and provide relief. God's jealousy accomplishes two things. It it brings judgment, but it provides relief to those who love him. It provides relief to his people. And and it's the same way with judgment. In this case, the judgment is coming on to Assyria. The judgment that Nahum is predicting is coming to Assyria, but that same judgment will provide relief to the nation of Israel. So they're under suppression of the Assyrians. And then we also saw that vengeance belongs to the Lord alone and that in his time, he will bring it upon the wicked. And that's a tough one sometimes for us. Sometimes we want the vengeance now on the people that are suppressing God's people. But as Christians, we don't get to bring the vengeance. God does that. We bring the truth. We bring the message that can lead to repentance And faith in Christ, he brings, he's the one that decides when the judgment comes. And like Paul said this morning, it will come. He is slow to anger, but when the anger, when that, when that barrier is withdrawn, it comes in a fury. We're going to see all of that today. Um, So he's the one that brings it. However, he provides warning and escape from this vengeance. He is the escape. He is the judgment and the mercy. He is the grace and the wrath. And that brings us to verse 4 where we'll start today. So if you, Nahum chapter 1 verse 4 says, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither and the flowers of Lebanon wilts. And in the last, there in in verse 3 and verse 1 through 3, we heard how God is complete and and he is in complete and utter control of his creation. There's there's lots of different theories out there, even within Christianity, um, about how God works within his creation. I I don't remember all the names of these, but basically there's a popular one out there where God is just kind of like the clockmaker, where he just winds it up, set it into motion, and then he's kind of hands off. The scripture knows nothing of that God. That God doesn't exist. The God of the scriptures, the God that we serve, Jesus Christ, actually control. He declares the beginning from the end. So he is in utter control of his creation. We see this even more here. It says he rebukes the sea and it dries up. Turn over to Psalm 106. 
This was not the first time he dried up a sea. And I'm sure you can think of another time. He didn't dry it completely up. But in Psalm 106, we see an account of it where David mentions it. 106 verse 9. Actually, I'm going to read verse 8. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. Verse 9, he rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up, so he led them through the depths as through the wilderness, or, or in other translations, as through the desert. When you read the account in Exodus, they crossed on dry ground. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And read verse 11, the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left, and then they believed his words. And they sang his praises. So we get a reminder here when Nahum is talking about drying up the sea, it no doubt brings images of the Red Sea and how it was parted and there was dry ground underneath. And you think about the Red Sea. He rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up. And there was two reasons that he did this. Go back to the Red Sea. There was two reasons God caused it to split. The first being... To provide an escape for his people. They walked across on dry ground. The second reason was to provide judgment on those who were against his people. The very same water that provided the escape they got across is the very same water that drowned every Egyptian, it says in Psalms. Every one of the army of Egypt was drowned in the Red Sea. Everyone that was pursuing God's people, the nation of Israel at the time, were destroyed by the judgment of God. It's the same thing when you think about the flood in Noah's time, right? God flooded the entire earth and the ark. The very water that destroyed the sins of the world, the very water that destroyed all the wickedness in the world, is the same water that caused the ark to float, right? So you're seeing two things with God here. We're seeing his mercy and his wrath, and they work together. And so Nahum, as he brings this, it's kind of like, let Assyria be warned. God's dried up the sea before, and he will do it again. In other words, judgment is coming. And it's because, and, and this judgment will provide relief for my people. And not only does he dry up the seas, but he dries up all the rivers. And what is this referring to? The ancient city of Nineveh, it depended on a natural water barrier of the Tigris River as a basic element of defense. So you had the city, and I think, I think history will tell you that the walls of the city of Nineveh were near 40 feet tall. 40 feet in that day and age. I mean, we have, you know, 100-story buildings now, but 40 feet, which is, that is an extremely tall wall to build around a city. You're not scaling that thing, you know, without some sort of rope or some sort of help. But anyway, this city, it backed up against the Tigris River. And of course, the Tigris River was used for transportation, but it was also defense because there was only one way to get there. You, you see what I mean? You can't come all these different directions if they were getting there that Tigris River limited how they could access it 
So it was a natural defense. It was a basic element of defense. And then as we see the poetic nature of this prophecy, it's saying that God can destroy their natural defense without even an army. Your river that you depend on for defense, your river that you depend on for transportation, your river that you depend on for water, I can dry it up with the word of my power. Your river is nothing to me. It kind of reminds me, just because it's on my mind as I'm teaching about the gods of Egypt, right? The last last uh, Sunday I taught about the Nile River. The, the Egyptians worshipped the river because it provided so much for them. And it kind of goes right back to Romans 1 that we heard this morning. They worshipped the creation rather than the creator. The river did nothing for them. The creator of the river it was, the, it, was, it was the avenue in which God provided, right? Same way with Nineveh. Same way with any people, any group of people that depend on things. We all depend on nature for certain things, right? We depend on rain. We depend on food. All of that is just the mere, I mean, that's what we see. That's the result. The provider is God. And that's what he's saying here. This feeble water barrier... It's deterred attackers for a hundred years. You've been very strong, Assyria. That's only because God has allowed you to be. It can deter armies. It can deter attackers. But it cannot deter the Almighty God. I can dry it up with my word. And he'll say a little later in verse 8, he'll actually say, I can use it against you as a flood too. And that's actually what's going to wind up happening. He's going to use the river that they depend on to kill him. So, and then in that same verse, he mentions three of the most fertile lands in the area. Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. In that area at that time, or most through history, those were extremely, extremely fertile grounds. That was a very, very productive area of land. Um, of course, if you think of Lebanon, if you know the scriptures, you've probably thought of the cedars of Lebanon. Huge, huge cedar trees that would be used, that was used in Lebanon. They were used to build Solomon's temple, right? They would transport them in because it was, these trees were phenomenal, way more than what you could get in Israel. And so he's using this as an example, but this is also the area, he's used drought there before for judgment. That's where Elijah was in the time when, you remember the, the great drought that, and Elijah was almost to die and the lady he comes across, she was, they were going to eat their last little bit of food and they were going to die. That drought that was going on, that was the area of Carmel. But Nahum's vision is going to show much more here. He, he says, he envisions the entire land, including the blossoms blossoms of Lebanon or the flowers of Lebanon a drought so far reaching that it will even destroy those great cedars of Lebanon and if you know anything about drought small droughts kill grass right the worse the drought gets the bigger the tr- the bigger the plants get that die so you know you're in an extreme extreme drought when the trees start to die and we experience that uh, what, 2012, I think, here. And that's why there's no trees in western Oklahoma. There's not, there's not enough rain to keep them. And we, because the tree's roots go so deep, 
and so spread out and they can gather up so much water that it takes a major, major drought for them to die. And that's what Nahum's saying here. You're, the judgment that's coming, this isn't like what Elijah experienced. This is worse. The judgment that's coming, this is worse than what Egypt experienced. You will be utterly destroyed. But turn over to Isaiah chapter 33. I don't want to just bring all bad news. Isaiah 33, I'm going to read verse 9 and 10. It says... The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. And then turn over to chapter 35. And I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. It says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. So God has made a promise to Israel that he is going to restore this fruitfulness. He's going to take away this drought. So we're seeing here, so what we're kind of seeing with this, even the mention of Carmel and Lebanon, we're seeing that God is bringing the judgment on Assyria, but his people are going to be blessed by that judgment. But he makes no promise to Assyria. There is no promise here that Assyria will be saved. There is no promise here that Assyria will be spared. It's actually quite the opposite. Look at verse 5. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yet the world and all who dwell in it. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. When the wrath of God is stirred, the whole earth is shaken. The foundations of the very earth that we know will be affected. They will be disturbed. There is no holding back. There is no part of creation that's not affected when God's wrath is released. This is where this is where our um, some of the some of the ideology of our current time is that somehow the plants and the trees and the soils and the mountains and all of that are somehow really, really good. And they're amazing. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't deny that they are an amazing thing. But every single part of this earth, every single part of creation is affected by the fall. You know, and this is where it's just amazing how you can have animal rights groups and different people like that that are just completely against the killing of animals. Well, some of those animals exist, or some of those animals, the way that they exist, are directly because of the fall. 
right? Uh, let's take the snake, for example. I mean, it, we were given the perfect example. And yes, Satan was the, the back of the behind all that. But the snake itself was cursed, right? So that means it's okay to kill snakes. Good news. It's all right. Go ahead and kill them. Yes. No, but there's vermin that exists. Did mice exist before the fall? Probably. Did they carry diseases? Absolutely not. Did they eat all of our food? Absolutely not. Would they be a pestilence? No. So is it okay to kill mice? Of course it is. We have to subdue the creation because God is the one that's in control of the creation. And he will just, he's destroyed it before. He's destroyed the parts that seem like are good, right? The mountains, every one of them was covered during the flood. And so we see all this happen and we see the world that is so against it because they worship the creation. And we have got to get past that. We can't entertain that as Christians. If we need to cut down a tree because somebody reveres it as too high esteemed, then let's cut it down. That actually happened. I can't remember. I won't go into it because I don't remember the story, but during the Reformation, it's a big one. I'll tell it later. But sometimes you need to cut down a tree, right? It would be a, it would be a sin to be freezing to death for the lack of firewood because this mighty oak tree is so important. You know, the mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Can you, can you picture a hill, a mountain melting down? The fervent heat that the wrath of God brings. Have you ever gazed at the beauty of a mountain? Been to the Rocky Mountains and they are beautiful. I do love God's creation. It's not like I'm anti-creation here. I love God's creation. You can see his majesty in his creation, but it should remind us of his majesty, not the majesty of that, right? But they are. They are amazing to look at, a, at these huge mountains in the, in the Rockies and Colorado and Montana. And those mountains quake before him. They shake in his presence. They are at 100% under his, uh, submitted to him. But there's many, many foolish men and women who will try to stand against the opposition of God. That mountain that's 15,000 feet tall is afraid of God. But you, little man, little woman, you're going to stand against the Almighty that's what happens when you suppress the truth. You become a fool. That is a, that is, there is nothing more foolish than you can do than to stand in opposition to Almighty God. And that's what Nahum is bringing here. He's saying, Nineveh, you've had this time. You had this blessed time when your fathers and their fathers repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now look at you. You're standing in opposition to Almighty God. The mountains will quake. The hills will melt. And you're going to try to stand against that like you won't be affected? How foolish is that? And if you're like me, you're looking at this point in the book of Nahum and you're thinking, just repent. Why, why wouldn't you hear this? This is the same message that Jonah brought. 
Repent. Why wouldn't you just listen to the warning? Why wouldn't they remember the teachings of their parents and and their grandparents? And if you're like me, you're thinking that, but I want you to turn to 2 Peter. Chapter 3. Second Peter chapter three, verse ten says, "But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. But both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up." Is this sounding familiar? Sound a little bit like what Nahum's saying, right? Except now, when Peter here is talking about the entire world. It's not just Assyria, not just Nineveh, but he's talking about it all. And then look at, but look at what verse 11 says. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct, conduct and godliness? And here's where it hit me. I'm crying out as I'm reading and studying Nahum. Why don't you just repent? If we were watching this in a movie and Nahum's delivering this message, you'd be going, just just turn around. Just stop it. And then I read this that, was, that Peter brought, and it's coming directly to all of us. And I'm going, what manner of persons, what manner of persons should I be? What... How should I be living my life in view of this, that we know this judgment is coming and it is inevitable? We are under judgment in our country and that particular judgment, is it possible that it could be turned around? Maybe. There could be repentance. There could be revival. But there is judgment coming on the world that will not, it cannot be reversed. It's going to come. We don't know how long God is going to hold his restraining hand on it, but he will pour his wrath out. And knowing that, what manner of persons should we be? And I can't speak for you, but I need to be better. And not in some legalistic way to earn my salvation. That is not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about I have a realization. I have a revelation that God is real, that God is just, and that Jesus Christ spared me. I know that. And if you're in Him, if you believe in Christ, you know that too. And having that knowledge, shouldn't I have more fear of God? And shouldn't I have more love for truth and righteousness, and shouldn't I love to honor him more? And that's where I was left with reading that. What manner of persons should I be? What manner of person, what manner of man should I be? And it should be a lover of truth above all. And my actions and how I deal with people should be a direct revelation of that, should, should mirror that truth. So turn back to Nahum now. In verse 6, 
Who can, who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. So we get here, obviously, a rhetorical question. He's asking the question. It's not that he's asking, trying to get an answer. Nahum knows the answer. Who who shall rise up? Will Israel rise up against God? Will Judah? Will Assyria? Babylon? Egypt? The answer is no. No, of course. The answer is nobody. Nobody can rise up against this almighty God. None of them. What nation, what kingdom in the history of the world has been strong enough to stand? Just like the song says, kingdoms will rise and fall. And I promise you, if you could go into Rome at the height of the Roman Empire, people would go, there's no way this thing's fallen. This is too powerful. You can go into Babylon at the height of that. You think Nebuchadnezzar thought he was invincible? Absolutely he did. Where did that get him? Grazing with the cows. We all have got to know this kingdom of the United States can rise and fall. It has risen. It's been there. And it will fall. It is not going to stand. There's not been one yet. Right? The British Empire. Look, just the Greeks, the Medes, the Persians. There's been many, many very extremely powerful kingdoms They're there until God has used them for what his purpose was, and then they fall. And that's where we are. So it's a rhetorical question. None. None can stand before his indignation. The last part of this verse makes the warning abundantly clear. This is not a call to repentance like Jonah brought. This is not a rebuke to get Nineveh back on track. No, this fire utterly destroys. This wrath will completely consume the wicked. There comes a point that God will no longer hold back his wrath. That's what Paul said this this morning, right at the end of his message. It's coming. There is a time when God has said, he will say, I've had enough. I've had enough. Where is that point? We don't know. But this much I do know. If you remember back, verse 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. He is slow to anger, and I praise God that he is. I thank him. Praise God he was slow to anger with me. Or I would have been destroyed before I was saved. He was slow to anger with all of you. And if you're still abiding under his judgment, if you have not repented and put your faith in Christ, he is demonstrating that he is slow to anger with you right now. But this much I know, he will not acquit the wicked. At some point, punishment is coming. And as individuals, we can look at it like this. We will either receive the punishment from God himself, and as you look at his fury will melt the hills, the mountains quake before him. I don't think you want that. 
Or you will put your faith in Christ who has already received that punishment. What an incredible blessing. But this much I know too. When that judgment comes, it is too late to change. When he pulls away his restraining hand and lets his wrath flow, it is too late to repent. It is too late to run. There is nowhere you can hide. There is no mountain tall enough to get you out of the flood. There is no protection from the fervent heat that will come. The time of repentance is now. The day of repentance is today. So let's look at some good news. Look at verse 7. And and to be honest, Nahum doesn't have a lot of good news. It's a lot of judgment coming. But remember, with the judgment, the judgment has a purpose. And part of it is to destroy the people of God. And part of it is to save the people of God. So look at verse number 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. If you want a little piece of good news, there it is. And I think we we do not understand just how great of news that is. After laying out the wrath of God and introducing God as the judge, Nahum will now set a contrast. He'll another he'll now set another view of God. And I praise God that he has many facets. I praise God that he's not just a God of wrath. Or else we would all be consumed. Or we never would have existed. I praise God that he's not just a God of judgment. Or this would all be over. We wouldn't be allowed to stand here before you. But he has another side. He has other facets. And so the prophet will now set the fierceness of God's wrath against the tenderness. It's like the backdrop, right? If you've, if you've done the small groups at all, we, we saw just a few months ago, I think, how when, when you're looking at diamonds, has anybody ever bought diamonds in here? When they, when they bring out a diamond to show you, what do they put it on? Put it on a nice white table? No, they bring out this amazing looking, it's really neat what, how it looks, it's a black felt, right? And they lay that black felt out there and they put that diamond on top of that black felt and it's just like comes to life, right? Why? It has the backdrop. It has the, the, contra, the contrast. And that's what Nahum is doing here. He's laying out the black side here of the wrath of God. And it is not good. I mean, it is scary, right? But then when you put God's goodness and gracious in front of that, then it magnifies it. It comes out shining bright. It comes to life. And that's what we see here. The Lord is good. The tenderness becomes more tender in view of the wrath. Mercy becomes more merciful in view of God's scorn. But it's got to be clear on who that's to. It's not for everybody. The majority of the people we know from Jesus' teaching in Matthew, 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart. I never knew you. Broad is the way, right? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And narrow is the way that leads to truth. Few there are that find it. But God bless us, the ones that have found it. The ones that God has revealed his beautiful, glorious grace to. The Lord is good. And for those who trust in the Lord, we don't have to experience that wrath. If you want good news, it's packed right there in that one little verse. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. We can run to the stronghold. A stronghold was like a fortress, right? In times of battle. And man, if you were caught out in the open and and the, the invading army was coming, and if you got caught by them, you were not going, it was not going to be good. But when you saw them, if you would turn, you knew, turn and run immediately. I can outrun them because they're moving as a group. If I can get to that stronghold, they can't get me. They cannot get through these walls. They cannot get through this door. That's what a stronghold was. It was a safe place to get away from the armies, right? Oh, man. How good is the stronghold of Jesus Christ? Impenetrable. You can't, you cannot bring it down. It's impossible. And what is it a stronghold from? Himself. That's why it's so effective. That's why it's so glorious. He is saving you from his, from his own wrath. And it will not penetrate. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust him. O. Palmer Robertson said this, The judgment of Nineveh must be viewed from the perspectives of God's intent to show mercy to his people. So when we see this judgment, we have to see mercy. If you don't see mercy, then you don't know Christ. If you don't see mercy in God's judgment, then you don't know Christ. And that's why he's bringing it here. And this is kind of a side note, but we have to understand it as is kind of a basic hermeneutic here. It's important to note that the people that Nahum is talking about that trust in God here is not limited to national Israel. That is not who he's talking about. How do I know that? Because only a hundred years before this, the entire city of Nineveh was saved. The entire city of Nineveh trusted in God. It's important to know that. Are there any remnants? I don't know. If they are, they'll hear Nahum and they'll escape. They'll run to the stronghold. But it was not the nation of Israel that was the people of God. It's those who trust him. It's not the people who have been born in a Christian family. It's not the people who call themselves Christians. It's not the people who have been baptized. It's not the people who have spoken tongues or done many other wonderful works or cast out demons or any of those things. No. Who is the people of God? Those who trust Him. The other song we sang today, and God alone is our salvation. So those who have nothing to fear are those who trust in the Lord. 
No matter the nationality, no matter the race, no matter male or female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, right? We're all, those who trust in Jesus have nothing to fear. And so what are we seeing here? What do we, how do we apply this today? It's very direct. As you heard this morning, as, as, as you all probably know, our country was once under the blessing of God. I, I believe that. I believe the foundation of the United States was a blessing from God. Does that mean it was perfect? Of course not. Our government um, has never been without blood on her hands. But there was, a, there was a favor of God on this land for a long time. We were allowed, how do I know that? Because we were allowed to preach the gospel. Truth has been allowed to prevail. Churches were allowed to be built. We were allowed to worship in whatever way we chose for many, many years, for near 200 years. The, the gospel could go forth basically un, unchallenged. It was protected by the government. I don't know if you've noticed that's changing. People could worship, and many people did worship Jesus Christ in this country. And even the people that were not Christians, there was a fear of Christians. There was a fear of God. There was a certain amount of respect given to Christianity and churches and preachers and those kind of things. That, that isn't there anymore, not like it used to be. Why? Why is it changing? Because we're under the judgment of God. I could go over like many ways, but I'm, there's a few that I wanted to look at. And I won't turn there for the sake of time. But Isaiah in chapter Isaiah 3, 5 says, The people will be oppressed, everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. Man, I think we're there. The child will be insolent toward the elder. Do we have the respect of children for elders these days? Absolutely not. Not in general. Um, does that mean you should give up and not teach your children that? Absolutely not. Obviously, interesting enough, uh, you want to know a way that you can spread the kingdom of God? You want to know a way that you can cause the kingdom of God to be here today? Teach your children to respect their elders. Very simple. Do not let your child be insolent towards elders. But, but the base toward the honorable, we're, we're there. Look at, uh, or, well, I'll just read it. Jeremiah 23, 16 and 17 says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets, prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart and say, no evil shall come upon you. Here lies the problem. And I think this is fully why the United States is under judgment right now. It's not the government. The government has always been corrupt. It's the church. 
false prophets predicting peace when there was no peace. That's what was going on in Jeremiah's time. Do we have that today? We have false prophets standing behind podiums almost verbatim of what Jeremiah said. They continually say to those who despise me, the the Lord has said, you shall have peace. God just loves everybody. You're all God's children. That is exactly what Jeremiah was talking about. You're not all God's children. If you're in Christ, you're God's children. So when you stand in a church of 10,000 people or 20,000 people and you say, God just loves you all, you are the false prophet that Jeremiah was talking about. You will not have peace outside of Christ. You will have wrath. You will have judgment. You will have the mountains melting on top of you. It is important that, and this is what's causing it. I think the base root of all of it is the church. The church, in quotations. That's where the judgment started. It infiltrated into everything else. There is no surprise that the government, that unbelieving senators are corrupt. I mean, is anybody shocked at that? You give them billions of dollars to handle and they don't pocket some? I would be amazed if that didn't happen with unbelievers. But where the atrocity is, is that many of them, most of them, claim to be believers. That's why it's atrocious. I'm not surprised when a sinner acts like a sinner. But what should surprise us is one who claims to be redeemed, one who claims to be born again, stands and says, you will have peace. God loves you all. You will have prosperity. God never promised prosperity. False prophets predicting peace and prosperity is a sign of judgment, and it's also a cause of judgment. I could go on. We could, we could go on and on about different things, different sins, that signs that show that we are under judgment. I don't think you guys need to hear that. You can see the turning over of a culture to a reprobate mind. Evil is good and good is evil. I mean, people are literally crying in the streets because they want the right to kill their children. If that's not reprobate, I don't know what is. We see, I mean, we're seeing all this transgender and all that stuff. You can back up to 1973 or 72, whenever it was, and we, that, we knew that was the, the beginning of the reprobate mind. And whenever it was reversed the other day, praise God it was, or how, I don't understand what all is going on there, but the amount of screaming and hollering, because you won't let me kill my baby? Much of our culture looks like it's straight out of the Temple of Diane in Corinth. I mean, that's what we're seeing. But here's the thing. This isn't the first time. I mean, we shouldn't be as shocked as maybe that we are. All that's happened, we believe in depravity here, right? And this is why it's important to understand depravity. Because it's not a big shock when people act depraved. And it's been going on since the beginning of time. You go back pre-flood, it was this way. You go back Sodom and Gomorrah, it was this way. You go to Babylon, it was this way. You go to Corinth, it was this way. 
And I don't think I have to convince you all of this. The question is, what do we do about it? It's actually simple. And I love the simplicity of Christ, the simplicity of God. We can try to act all intellectual, and that's some of the problem with apologetics. Sometimes they want to try to act too intellectual and try to fit in with the intellectual crowd. And I kind of like the old good old horse sense. What do you do if you're stuck out there in the pasture and you see the army coming? Well, we could maybe devise a plan to crawl on our belly and wait until they pass by, and then maybe we can sneak in with them. And How about this a simple thing? Run. Run. You got an army and you're one? Run from it. And where are you going to run? To the refuge. We run to the stronghold. I have not been given a specific vision the way Nahum was to predict. He predicted with accuracy the destruction of the city of Nineveh. I don't know what the next part is going to look like. I don't think we're given that. I hope we would see repentance and revival in our land and that our country would be spared. But if we don't, what's it going to be? Drought? Man-made disease? I think we've kind of seen some of this. Maybe God brought disease. Economic collapse? Famine? I don't know. I don't know exactly what, how the judgment is going to come, but this I do know. In that day of trouble, the Lord is the stronghold. He is a shelter. He is not only a shelter, He is the shelter. And if you know Him, you can take such peace that no matter what comes, you have that. No matter what comes, and this has always been the message, whether it's judgment on a nation, whether it's judgment on a family, whether it's judgment on you, whether it's just sin in general that is coming down because of a fallen world, God is always the stronghold. God is always the shelter. There's been many people here that have withstood storms because they were in the shelter of God. And whatever happens, you know, we went to the cellar one time. I think I've only been in a cellar once in my life because, you know, if you're Oklahoman, tornadoes are just the thing to watch. But we did go one time, and Hannah was extremely scared. She gets, she gets extremely scared of tornadoes. And so we went to the cellar one time. And if, you don't, if you're not from Oklahoma, you should know that if you're underground, that tornado won't kill you. You're safe under there. Right? That's why they're there. You get underground and you're safe. And we were under there and we were safe. But she was still really scared. And I think sometimes maybe that's how we, should, we will be. But the logical view of that was the worst thing that could do was take our stuff. We were safe. We were safe in the stronghold. And I think as the judgment comes, there's lots of worrying there's lots of concern. What are we going to do? Are we going to starve? Are we going to do this? Are we, you know, And make preparations. There's nothing wrong with any of that to try to prepare yourself financially or physically or whatever for that. But know this. The worst that it can do is take your stuff. He cannot. He will not. He will protect you. Your soul is secure in that stronghold. He knows those who trust him, an intimate knowledge of his people. 
of his people, those who trust him. But he is only a stronghold to those who put their faith in him and him alone. The repentant sinner seeks help nowhere else. That's it. That's who we turn to. And many and most of you, many or most of you in this room have already put your trust in Christ. Many have already ran to the stronghold. And we're in it together. And it is a glorious place to be. We're in this shelter of Christ. They cannot touch our soul. And so take peace that he is, you're safe in his arms. You're safe in the palm of his hand. There's nothing this world can do to change any of that. And so we can rest in Christ. And there's another group, and you may be part of it. You may be resting under the judgment of God, the judgment that Nahum is predicting. You may be saying, it's not that bad. That's what the world's saying right now. Both sides, I don't care. Both sides of the aisle, politically, they're going, ah, it'll be okay. We just got to get our new guy elected. If you'll just let us finish the job we started, we'll get this done. And you may be thinking, ah, it's not that bad. The world's not that bad. Our culture isn't as bad. You're exaggerating. Or you may be saying, I, I see everything you're saying. But I just don't want to give up my sin. I just don't want to give up my lifestyle. I can see the culture falling. I can see it spiraling down. And maybe in a little while after I get all my wild oats sown, or maybe after I do this or that or whatever it is, whatever it is that you're thinking right now is putting you in dire danger of wrath, a wrath that can melt mountains. So if that is you, won't you avoid... Won't you turn and run to the refuge? Won't you turn and run to the stronghold of Christ, the shelter that he is, and let him bring you in and gather you up and protect you from all? Because if you're a Christian, that's where you are. And if you're not, I'm begging. Look to Christ. Turn to Christ and avoid this judgment. Let's pray. Father, Lord, it is an amazing thing to think how privileged we are to be in your stronghold, how privileged we are to be in your mercy, to be abiding under your grace and not your wrath. I thank you, God, that that's where I am. That's where you've brought me. For all my brothers and sisters, I thank you for them. I pray that if there's any here who have not repented, who have not put their eyes on Christ, you would open their eyes to see the glories of your grace today. That you would open their eyes and allow them to come into your shelter. That you would embrace them and protect them from whatever judgment the world has. I pray as we even look at communion that we would be reminded of this. That we would be reminded of your return. And even as we fellowship together, that our thoughts and our minds would be on you and your glorious gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.